Today's New Testament lesson is from the book of Luke, chapter 15, verses 11 through 32. Then Jesus said, There was a man who had two sons. The younger of them said to his father, Father, give me the share of the property that will belong to me. So he divided his property between them. A few days later, the younger son gathered all he had and traveled to a distant country. And there he squandered his property in dissolute living. When he had spent everything, a severe famine took place throughout that country, and he began to be in need. So he went and hired himself out to one of the citizens of that country, who sent him to his fields to feed the pigs. He would gladly have filled himself with the pods that the pigs were eating, and no one gave him anything. But when he came to himself, he said, How many of my father's hired hands have bread enough and to spare? But here I am, dying of hunger. I will get up and go to my father, and I will say to him, Father, I have sinned against heaven and before you. I am no longer worthy to be called your son. Treat me like one of your hired hands. So he set off and went to his father. But while he was still far off, his father saw him and was filled with compassion. He ran and put his arms around him and kissed him. Then the son said to him, Father, I have sinned against heaven and before you. I am no longer worthy to be called your son. But the father said to his slaves, Quickly, bring out a robe, the best one, and put it on him. Put a ring on his finger and sandals on his feet, and get the fatted calf and kill it, and let us eat and celebrate. For this son of mine was dead and is alive again. He was lost and is found, and they began to celebrate. Now his elder son was in the field, and when he came and approached the house, he heard music and dancing. He called one of the slaves and asked what was going on. He replied, Your brother has come, and your father has killed the fatted calf, because he has got him back safe and sound. Then he became angry and refused to go in. His father came out and began to plead with him, but he answered his father, Listen, for all these years I have been working like a slave for you, and I have never disobeyed your command. Yet you have never given me even a young goat so that I might celebrate with my friends. But when this son of yours came back, who has devoured your property with prostitutes, you killed the fatted calf for him. Then the father said to him, Son, you are always with me, and all that is mine is yours. But we had to celebrate and rejoice because this brother of yours was dead and has come to life. He was lost and has been found. This is the word of God for the people of God. Thanks be to God. Thanks be to God indeed. Uh, it's such a blessing to get to be with you this morning. It's kind of odd. It feels like both a week ago and a decade ago, the last time that I was preaching uh, and got to, to share the word with you was last Ash Wednesday. So it's been nearly a year ago, and I was blessed to begin our time and focus for the Lent season. And of course, this was right before the year 2020 showed us what it was really capable of. And it's a pleasure to get to be with you the Sunday before we begin the Lent season now. I just want to take a moment of privilege to say how deeply uh, I miss seeing each of you in person and look forward to and long for the day where I get to see you in person regularly again. Last year, as I said, I was preaching Ash Wednesday and I ran out of the pulpit, drove straight home to meet two friends who were already waiting in my driveway 
with the fishing boat in tow, ready to drive through the night for a three-day fishing trip. To be honest, it's one of the last normal memories I have. I wonder what's that memory for you? The whole weekend was summed up for me by one moment, one picture of us standing by a fire. The fishing had been just okay, but the company was great, and at the end of all of it, we stood smiling by a fire we made sure kept raging on. We told stories we had already told and had made new ones we'd keep telling. We stood in what was, not knowing that soon more than just a yearly trip would be over. What's the last photo you can remember taking in which everything felt normal? If your hair was long, it was by choice. If you were standing at a distance, it was because it was a candid shot. What's the picture or moment that sums up before for you? I think there's a chance if we could, we would look at that picture and tell ourselves a few spoilers about the months to come. Some things that maybe we know we couldn't even believe, or maybe some things that would have eased some moments of intense fear. I know that many of you would go back and live in that picture, taking away the searing pain of loss that you have experienced. If I'm honest, I long to live in that picture because it means Sunday night youth programs with pizza and standing by the door and giving every single student that walks in a high five. It means getting to share my baby daughter with this congregation. That's Janie B, Jane Bradley. I don't know where she gets her hair from. I know that each of us has a longing for what was. And so this morning I wanna teach from a passage that promises of what is to come. A passage that describes so deeply the character of the gods whose spirit sits with us this morning because we have a promise of what is to come, and I have good news for you this morning. It is a beautiful picture. In Luke chapter 15, Jesus finds himself in the presence of the Pharisees and the scribes, those individuals that have made it their lifetime goal to make sure other people follow the laws. As we have learned in this series, this is not Jesus' first encounter with them. And now he finds himself yet again speaking to them as they mumble under their breath about Jesus' regular table guest, the the tax collectors, or as the Pharisees see it, the sinners, those that are below them. The Pharisees scoff. This man welcomes sinners and eats with them even. So Jesus takes a few moments yet again to paint a picture of what the forthcoming kingdom of God looks like by telling a few stories. Jesus begins to reorient the understanding of his listeners. We didn't read it this morning, but you might remember that he starts by compelling them to think about their reaction if they had lost one of their sheep. If you had lost one of your 100 sheep, wouldn't you go after it, leaving the 99? And wouldn't you then, once you found it, celebrate the fact that you had found just that one sheep? Crickets from the Pharisees. So he puts it another way. What if a woman who owns only 10 coins loses one? 
Wouldn't she tear her house apart, turn the lights on, turn everything upside down, looking just for that one lost coin? Crickets again. Jesus says, don't you get it? There is more joy breaking out in heaven over one sinner lost who changes their heart and life than all those who need no change. For good measure, Jesus shares a third story, changing it up just a little bit, which brings us to our main text this morning. Now, I don't know about you, but I've heard this text a few times in my life, and it certainly is a text that you can approach from many different perspectives. So this morning, I want to invite each of us to find ourselves, because I assure you, you are represented here. After all, who can't relate to a story about the experiences of family dynamics? So Jesus shares a story about the prodigal son, the waiting father, and the elder brother. It's important here to notice that this is not necessarily just a third version of the previous stories. It should be seen more as a story that expands and complements them. Jesus, with each word and variation, is expounding upon the amount of celebration had over the changed heart and life of someone lost, and in doing so, is calling the Pharisees towards a hard look in the mirror. The younger son, or the prodigal son, we read right off the bat, asks for his, father's, asks for his share of his father's estate. There is no explanation for why this would happen. However, within the culture, this is not a regular practice unless the son had been getting married or the father had died. With no wedding bells in earshot and with his father still alive, we now assume that he is willing to cut ties with his family and treat his father as though he were dead. The younger son is willing to leave on the table any further claim to his father's estate and sets out for a trip. In this third story, unlike the first two, we get to hear the details of the trip of the lost. The son couldn't wander further and becomes more and more and more lost. He travels off to a distant land, likely a Gentile land, one in which the Hebrew laws and customs were not followed. The son wastes every bit of resources he receives from his father, squandering them and attempting to live an extravagant life if losing all of his wealth wasn't enough, a severe famine sweeps across the land, and so he finds himself now tending to the pigs of a Gentile man. The longing he has even to have the slightest bit of the slop the pigs are eating puts an exclamation on just how far he has fallen, the depth to which he is now lost. He has cut ties with his family, he has wasted all that has been given to him. And now culturally, by the laws of this land, he is unclean. Now I have to imagine here that the Pharisees are leaning in as they hear Jesus describe the length to which this man is unclean, the measure by which he does not measure up to the standards. They might even be responding as they glare at the tax collectors saying, that's exactly what we're talking about. How can you possibly sit at a table with someone that is this unclean, someone that resists our culture. But Jesus presses on, because he has not yet made them take the look in the mirror he intends for them. 
think it's important for us to stand, understand as the readers now that we are following along with two stories. The story that Jesus is sharing about a father and two sons and a soon-to-be savior of the world sharing a teaching lesson for two different class groups. We are following along with both, what the parable teaches us, but also what Jesus is sharing directly to his listeners in the time. And at this point, he is establishing that there are, are indeed, as the Pharisees so easily pointed out, those who are not in right standing with God, those who are unclean, and those that the Pharisees would call other. The story continues. The prodigal son realizes in his deepest moment of sorrow that he has walked away from. The dishonor he has brought his father and his culture. He is willing to head home, not as a son, but rather just begging for a spot as a hired hand. Someone to work in his father's fields. So the son works up his speech, likely practicing it the whole way home. Have you ever had to do that, needed to make such a big apology, and then you knew it wasn't gonna be easy, and so you, you practiced the words over and over again, making sure that you said everything right. The son, still reciting his speech, likely gets within an eyeshot of his childhood home, the one he willingly wandered from. The father gets the slightest glimpse of his son, out in the distance and bolts out the door running straight to him. And he embraces him. The son, of course, begins his prepared speech only to be cut off by his, his loving father. Quickly, bring out the best robe. Get the family ring and put it on his finger. Put some shoes on his feet. We are going to have a party because my son is home. My son is home. He was lost and gone, but now he is home. The party goes on and on, and the celebration grows larger and larger. And the Pharisees at this point are starting to see that the story is not going to go the way they would tell it. This unclean sinner, this person that would live in an act in a way that's not up to what they would say are the standards, this person so different than them, the father is going to run out and embrace him. He's gonna throw a party for him He's gonna act like none of that happened at all. The Pharisees understand at this point that Jesus is teaching to them just as much as he is teaching to the tax collectors and the sinners. He's painting a picture of the character of God's kingdom that is unfolding. And frankly, it's not sitting right with them. And Jesus knows it. You might remember how the story goes from here. The elder brother shares his deepest displeasure for his father about his years of faithfulness and never once being recognized for it. He wants nothing to do with the party because after all, not once has a party been thrown for him. He has followed all the rules. He never disobeyed his father and now he wants it to be clear that he thinks his father's other son should be kept on the outside. There is not a question in his mind that his father has made a poor choice. This other son is not worthy. I have to think that at this point the Pharisees get it. They might not like it, but they get it. Jesus is informing them that these tax collectors, these sinners, these others, they are not a lost cause. 
They are not cut out from the fold, and Jesus says the next line just as much about them as he did to the elder son. Child, you are always with me, and everything I have is yours, but we have to celebrate and be glad because this brother of yours was dead and is now alive. He was lost and now found. We don't get to choose our siblings, do we? But nonetheless, we look at them and call them brother or sister. I think in this moment, the tax collectors and the Pharisees might have looked at each other and realized that they might be getting some new siblings. Jesus has made it clear that the kingdom of God might not look like the exact image that had been formed in their head. He is painting a picture of a loving God willing to go run after each and every one of God's beloved children, regardless of their background. A God that is willing to turn the whole world upside down in search of one precious lost treasure called son or daughter. A God that is willing to meet you with a warm embrace when you come running back. Jesus has instilled here that not one person is outside the realm of forgiveness that will be offered by his sacrifice on the cross. There is a new way coming, a way that has a history of rules and laws that will be fulfilled by the actions done on a cross a new family that is being formed, and it includes people of all backgrounds. Make no mistake, this is a hard pill to swallow for the Pharisees. After all, they have spent generations following all the rules and making sure that they were righteous. It was a hard feat, and naturally they have built up some arrogance in the process, but now they likely face their hardest feat yet realizing that their following of a covenant has not led to a place of privilege, but rather a place of calling those they look down upon as brother or sister. The tax collectors, they're gonna walk a hard road knowing that they have to run to the Father and willing to embrace them. They will choose a grace that seems foreign to them, but made available to them. Now, I doubt any of you found yourselves in the midst of that story whatsoever. No way you have ever been the person that has run as far as you could, only realizing that you in no way can do this on your own. In no way have you ever found yourself puffed up with righteousness, looking at someone else as a sinner or other. Me, I've been both on a daily basis. Daily, I need to realize that God is constantly seeking me and searching for me and making it clear that grace is in abundance, is there for me, and I must choose to live into it. I think that is why it is so beautiful that the third story, the son must make the move back home. Grace is there and it is clear, but there must be a human response. And this morning, I know that some of you, that I, Need that to make that response and choose the Father over the world. Daily, I feel like a Pharisee, puffing up my own righteousness, causing me to look at others thinking I have it all together, only to realize that the person I might classify as other is really my brother and my sister. 
Because I assure you, Jesus looks at both sides of us, the lost and the arrogant, and says, the kingdom, it's all yours, but you have to go through me to get there. And that grace, it's life-changing. I wanna make it clear this morning, I'm not speaking about some sides being right and some sides being sinful and lost. I am talking about the inner and personal work we each need to do to acknowledge that each of us personally have a bit of both in us. As we give parts of us that are tax collector and parts of us that are Pharisee to God, then we start to see the kingdom unfold in the world in front of us. When I look at this picture of the kingdom that Jesus has painted, the one that includes both the arrogant side of us and the lost side of us because of the love of a savior, it makes me start to forget that picture I spoke of earlier. Yeah, and that picture seems simple from this side, but that's living in the past. And the picture we have today is a hope for the future, for tomorrow and tomorrow and tomorrow. This picture is one that calls us to leave behind that which felt so secure and trust in the words of a savior. This picture calls us to repent and to run to the arms of a father prepared to put a ring on our finger and celebrate us just because we are back. And I must also point out here that this ring, it's not just a flashy piece of jewelry. In the times, the family ring would also allow the son to make business deals for his father. He was trusted to help run the business. So there has to be a parallel drawn here that we are not, that we are not just called to run to the Father and be a part of the family, but we are called to do the work of the Father, to show that love and grace to all, to further that picture of the kingdom in which through Christ all people are welcome. Now it seems natural that we tend to find ourselves in either one of the brothers as we all tend to lean into their personalities from time to time. Up until May of this past year, I could only approach this story from one of those perspectives. I've experienced the love of a parent, but I've never been that parent. And honestly, for years, Carla and I didn't ever know if we would ever be able to preach this story from that perspective. We are so blessed by our little girl. She has made me realize that the celebration God has for us is not just a celebration. It is an eternal rejoicing for an amazing gift, one worth running after, one worth turning the world upside down for, and one worth sacrificing everything for. That is the child that you are and that I am. Last Ash Wednesday, I closed by sharing a story of texting Sam, a former student of the student ministry, and I wanna revisit it quickly today. I had simply texted him, hey bud. He had told me repeatedly when he was in the student ministry that he hated being called bud, so I always addressed him that way. He responded to me with a question. He said, how is it with your soul? a question that we had pondered weekly together in our guy's Bible study when he and his friends were in high school. In recent weeks, we've started checking in on each other each week, each of the guys sharing how it is with their soul. They're living out the kingdom to each other. They're helping each other through after-college choices, encouraging new paths where needed, 
and helping some navigate the loss of a parent. I love getting to sit on the sidelines and watch this unfold in our group message. It's also made me ponder more about how it is with my soul. This time last year, I said my soul could use some time to just simply sit and be with God. I've had a little bit of that time this year. My soul now could stand up to give the parts of me that are lost and that feel weak and let go of the ways in which I tried to live into my own pride and stubbornness. And it could certainly learn from the loving parent willing to, to receive both parts of me. Let it be so in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit. Amen.